0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, November 20th. In today's news, the CDC recommends against traveling or gathering for Thanksgiving. The Federal Reserve and Treasury Department go to war with each other. And Utah hospital workers rushed to New York in the spring to help. Now New Yorkers return the favor. But first, the big idea. President Trump is using the power of his office to try to reverse the results of the election. He is orchestrating a far-reaching pressure campaign to persuade Republican officials in Michigan, Georgia, and elsewhere to overturn the will of the voters in what critics like Mitt Romney call an unprecedented subversion of democracy. After courts rejected Trump's baseless allegations of widespread voter fraud, the president is now trying to remain in power with a wholesale assault On the integrity of the vote by spreading misinformation and trying to persuade loyal Republicans to manipulate the electoral system on his behalf. Trump's focus for the moment is centered on Michigan. He has invited the leaders of Michigan's Republican controlled state Senate and House to meet with him later today at the White House, ahead of next Monday's state canvassing board meeting to certify results. The president's team says that if they can get the board to deadlock, the legislature could then choose to ignore Joe Biden's popular vote win and seat Trump electors. This is not just legally dubious. It is downright autocratic. Trump is putting our Republican system through a stress test. Biden won Michigan by 150,000 votes. Dave Farenthal, Beth Reinhardt, Elise Viebeck, and Emma Brown report that Trump's Hail Marys are almost certain to fail, If the board of canvassers deadlocks on the decision to certify Michigan's results, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer could seek to replace its members on the spot, or she could seek a court order requiring the board to certify. In Wisconsin, a recount demanded by the Trump campaign of ballots in the state's two mostly Democratic counties, Dane, home of Madison, and Milwaukee, will begin later today. Biden leads Trump in Wisconsin by 20,600 votes. In Nevada, where Biden is winning by more than 33,000 votes, The Nevada Supreme Court will meet on November 24th to certify statewide results. After which, Governor Steve Sisalik, a Democrat, will publicly proclaim Biden the winner. But the following day, a judge in Carson City is scheduled to hear a formal election contest from Trump, in which his lawyers argue that Biden's victory should be thrown out and annulled because of widespread fraud in the state. There's literally no evidence at all of any fraud in the state. In Pennsylvania, where Trump lost by 82,000 votes, all counties are required to submit their official results to the state by Monday. The Democratic Secretary of State is then required to certify the results. The leaders of the Republican-controlled state legislature have said they will respect that process, but they're coming under mounting and intense pressure from the Trump White House to try to sabotage the results. In Georgia and Pennsylvania, where Republicans also control the state legislatures, officials said Trump's ploy stands little chance of success. A top advisor to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, said there is zero chance that he would take a phone call right now from the president or any of his advisors. Raffensperger will certify the statewide result later today. The certification then goes to Governor Brian Kemp, another Republican, for his signature. Privately, Trump has been fuming to advisors and saying that he's furious with the governor for not trying to do more to overturn the will of the people of Georgia but Kemp hasn't said what he's going to do about certifying the results. And in an extraordinary news conference yesterday at the Republican National Committee headquarters, Trump's attorneys claimed without any evidence that there was a centralized conspiracy with roots in Venezuela to rig the election. Trump campaign attorney Sidney Powell claimed that the voting systems used in many states, including those manufactured by Dominion Voting Systems, use software created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez to, quote, make sure he never lost an election. There's zero evidence to support this theory. Zero. Moreover, the company's products are certified for use in many states that Trump won, including Florida and Utah. In addition, Rudy Giuliani and Powell's claims have been disproved in Georgia, where the state has just finished a hand recount of 5 million paper ballots that affirmed that the Dominion scanners accurately counted every vote. The show by Trump's lawyers disquieted many, including Chris Krebs, the Trump-appointed director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, whom the president fired on Tuesday after he stated publicly that the election was secure. Krebs tweeted that the press conference with Rudy Giuliani and Powell was the most dangerous one hour and 45 minutes of television in American history, and possibly the craziest. But Trump was enthused about the news conference. He urged people to watch it. The event seemed at times farcical, with literally, you can't make this stuff up, streaks of what appeared to be black hair dye mixed with sweat, literally dripping down the sides of Giuliani's face as he spoke. On Capitol Hill, senior Democrats ratcheted up their rhetoric. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said what Trump is doing, quote, borders on treason. Romney, the 2012 GOP nominee for president, said, quote, it is difficult to imagine a worse, more undemocratic act by any sitting American president. And President-elect Biden's team continues to express confidence that Trump's effort to keep power will fail. White House sources say one of the reasons Trump is so obstinate about refusing to relinquish the presidency is because he's terrified about the prospect of facing criminal prosecution next year. The New York Times reported overnight that two separate fraud investigations in New York State into Trump and his businesses, one criminal and one civil, have expanded recently to include tax write-offs on millions of dollars in dubious consulting fees, some of which appear to have gone to Ivanka Trump. Those inquiries... A criminal investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, and a civil investigation by the state's Attorney General, Letitia James, are being conducted independently of one another. But the Times reports that both offices have issued new rounds of subpoenas to the Trump organization in recent weeks for records related to the dubious consulting fees. Ivanka Trump tweeted last night that both of these investigations into her fees are, quote, 100% motivated by politics, publicity, and rage. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as this week comes to an end. Number one, in the CDC's first news briefing in months, officials say they've been alarmed to see one million new cases reported across the U.S. over the past week. They spoke in stark terms as they warned that friends and relatives getting together for the holidays could inadvertently bring the coronavirus with them. For those still planning to travel, the CDC is urging hosts to improve ventilation by opening windows or doors or putting central air and heating on continuous circulation. They say that people should spend time together outside, if possible, taking a walk or sitting six feet apart for interpersonal interaction. Singing and shouting should be avoided, especially inside. And pets should be treated like human family members and kept from interacting with people who live outside the household. The seven-day average of new cases in America hovers at more than 160,000. On Wednesday alone, Nearly 1,900 Americans died of COVID, the deadliest day for our country since May. Debbie Burks said that the dramatic surge in new cases was caused largely by unusually cold late September weather across the Midwest that drove lots of people indoors. During the first public briefing in months by the White House Coronavirus Task Force, Burks emphasized that the high number of asymptomatic cases, which is almost half of all infections, are what's driving transmission the most right now. And Biden said at a news conference in Delaware that Trump will be remembered by history as one of our nation's most reckless leaders for holding up vital cooperation on the pandemic after losing reelection. The president-elect said an untold number of Americans are going to die as a direct consequence of Trump refusing to allow the transition process to move forward, which he says is going to slow down vaccine distribution. Here in D.C., the city reported more than 5,000 new infections in the region on Thursday. That's an all time record for a single day here. It has prompted the Smithsonian Institution to announce that it will close all the facilities that it had reopened over the summer to the public, including the National Zoo. Number two, Trump appears intent on undermining the economy that Biden is set to inherit. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin announced that he will not extend most of the emergency lending programs that have been run in tandem with the Federal Reserve. The central bank immediately and strongly criticized the move by the lame duck president, saying that what Trump is doing will further imperil the already fragile recovery. Rachel Siegel and Jeff Stein report that the Fed's exceedingly rare public rebuke of a president reflected a government divided on how to act as the pandemic surges. In a letter to Fed chair Jerome Powell, Mnuchin not only said that several of the programs would wind down at the end of the year, He also requested that unspent money allocated to the Fed under the first stimulus effort, the CARES Act, in the spring, be reallocated by Congress. Treasury's move would end most of the Fed's emergency lending facilities, as well as the Main Street Lending Program and the Municipal Liquidity Facility, both of which issue loans to struggling businesses and local governments. The Treasury and the Fed jointly established a suite of emergency programs during the early days of the pandemic. and. They have increasingly, especially since the election, clashed over how the programs should be structured and how effective they can be. The shared responsibility means that certain decisions can't be made unilaterally by Mnuchin, setting the stage for this surprisingly outward-facing war between the country's central bank and its Treasury Department. Powell was appointed by Trump, but he refuses to be cowed. One reason that Powell spoke out yesterday against what Trump's trying to do is that the jobs report was really bad. The number of new unemployment claims spiked last week to 742,000. An additional 320,000 unemployment claims were processed as part of the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. That's the program for gig and self-employed workers. Right now, 20.3 million Americans are claiming some form of unemployment insurance. Before the pandemic, the all-time record for the most jobless claims filed in a single week had been set in 1982 it was 695000 The new jobless claims have broken that record every single week for the last 35 weeks now, and everyone expects that it's about to get far worse. There are lots of ominous warning signs for the economy. Credit card spending is plummeting. Reservations at restaurants, as measured by open table data, have collapsed in the last few weeks. An estimated 12 million people are poised to lose unemployment benefits on December 26th, which was going to push millions of people over the brink into financial ruin and destitution, and Congress appears unable to act before then. Economists are panicking about the catastrophic effects of this expiration. Households with little in the way of support or savings find themselves in increasingly dire financial straits just as the national eviction moratorium expires. This means that a lot of our fellow Americans, are about to become homeless right in the middle of the winter. Number three, as we enter what is going to be one of the darkest winters in our nation's entire history, I want to close out this week with a little illustration of why I still believe in America and why I retain hope and optimism that ultimately, together, we will triumph over these cascading crises and dark forces that seek to tear us apart. Let me tell you about Daria Warlava. The 36-year-old was exhausted and overwhelmed, and so was everyone around her. It was April, and coronavirus cases flooded the New York City Hospital, where she is an intensive care nurse. Every single patient in her ICU was on a ventilator at that point. It felt like the whole world had stopped making sense. For weeks, Daria and her coworkers were running on fumes and precious little sleep. She wondered how the team at New York Presbyterian would get through it. Then, a group of Utah nurses and doctors arrived at her hospital, ready for duty, offering desperately needed relief. There was nothing in it for them. Fred Ashton, a respiratory therapist at Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake, was among the group who volunteered to come to New York to help take care of patients. After Fred successfully extubated two of her patients within 30 minutes, saving their lives, Daria told him that if his hospital ever needed help, she'd be the first to volunteer. Two weeks ago, as the contagion crippled Utah with more than 3,000 new cases a day, Daria made good on her word. Kathy Free reports that Daria was among 31 nurses from New York Presbyterian to arrive at that hospital in Salt Lake, where Fred and his colleagues were working double and triple shifts. This cavalry allowed Fred a father of three teenagers, to get a couple hours sleep amid the surge. Sadly, now Daria and the rest of her team of nurses are headed back to New York City, just as public schools have had to close there again because cases are beginning to climb. It's not slogans on red hats that make America great. It is selfless acts like these. From Daria and Fred. Daria said that after living through the terrifying early wave of cases, she and her colleagues learned that it's okay to feel anxious and lost sometimes. One of the messages she says that she tried to convey to the frontline medical workers in Utah is that they should just know that they're doing the best they can, even if it doesn't feel that way sometimes. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, November 20th. Thank you for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Homan. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.